to the chapter nine of the, uh, the man born blind just a couple of comments uh, the section of interrogation uh, Pharisees and the man born blind in this particular miracle, one of the things that you don't find, as you would find in many of the other miracle stories in the Gospels, is that uh, the people's amazement or reaction to this miracle is not recorded. What you have is the doubts, the questionings, the interrogation, etc. Most miracles, it typically mentions you know, the reaction of the people, how they're amazed, you know, no one else has done anything like this, and all that. So. But that's not present here in this particular miracle story. Just the fact of the healing and his testimony to Jesus, that's the core of this particular healing story. It's not the people's, not the impression it made on the people, but it's establishing the fact of the healing and also his testimony to Jesus. There are three things at play here. There are three questions that the story tries to answer. One is, is the cured man the man who was blind? Is it really he? Uh, some said, it's he. Others said, no, but it's like him. He said, I am the man. So the first thing it's dealing with is the identity of this individual. Is this man who was cured the man who was blind? The second thing is, how did this healing take place? So the issue is on the method of the healing. First is the identity of the man. The second has to do with how the healing took place, the method. And finally, is it evidence for Jesus's divine origin? So the issue there is its theological consequences. So in regard to the first question, is the cured man, the man who was blind, born blind, the identity of the man is confirmed by acquaintances, the man himself, even his parents. Okay, so identity is confirmed there. The second thing is the method. That's confirmed by the man's repeated and non-contradictory description. 
They ask him over and over again, tell us how this happened. And he keeps repeating it. And it's consistent. So he answers that question. How did the thing take place? He tells you. And finally, the theological issue there is, is Jesus a sinner because he's a Sabbath breaker? Or is he from God because he's a great miracle worker? So really the whole story revolves around that, the identity of the man. Was he really born blind? Okay, establish the fact that the second thing is how did how is he healed? What method was used? And finally, what does it say about Jesus? Verse 16, uh, the Pharisees say, This man is not from God. The principle behind this judgment would be similar to what you find in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 13, where it states, even a wonder worker must not be believed, but must be put to death. If he tends to draw people away from what God commanded. So even though it may work wonders, if what he is doing is leading people away from God, okay, and this he doesn't have God's approval. And this is what they're saying. Well, he's breaking this out. This man isn't from God. And then the blind man says to him, Well, how can such a person, how can such a man perform the signs that he does? The idea that a sinner can't work miracles. It's not upheld in biblical tradition. But to go back to the book of Exodus, they tell us that some of Pharaoh's sorcerers were able to imitate Aaron's miraculous works. Then even in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, Jesus says that false messiahs and prophets will show great signs and wonders in order to lead astray even the elect. So the fact that a person works miracles does not necessarily mean he's from God. And a person, through the works that he does, is leading people away from God. It's not from God. And then they ask him, verse 17, Jordan. Naaman wanted to be cured, 
prophet told him, go wash in the Jordan. So what is the blind man being told here? Go wash in the pool of Siloam. So it's a parallel to the Old Testament story. When the man says that he's a prophet, it may mean that he's, Jesus has divine power. And the best category he can think of to describe such a person is a prophet. It was a popular description of people who were particularly close to God. The prophet was credited with particular knowledge. You know that, remember the Nathaniel, the Samaritan woman, he told me things that, you know, you know, he didn't know about before. So unusual particular knowledge, and also extraordinary power. So they often describe a prophet as that, someone who had unusual knowledge about things and people, and also someone who uh, displayed uh, extraordinary power. Then you get the parents involved in verse 22. His parents, uh, they were brought forward, you know, is this your son? How was he born? Was he born blind? How does he see now? They say, well, he's old enough. He can speak for himself. The parents said this because they feared the Jews. The Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be Christ, he was to put out. He was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So we've mentioned this before. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, Jesus says, uh, the day will come when men will cast out uh, the name of the disciples of Jesus as evil and exclude them. So you have the possibility of some type of excommunication being foreseen as the future fate of believers in Jesus. Now here, it indicates this is a reality. The parents are afraid of this because this has happened, and they're being threatened with this. We know that didn't happen in Jesus' time. It only happened after that council. Let's say another council. Council was in eighty-five. Jerusalem. No. Was that? Yeah, No, <laughs> just draw a blank. Council of uh, Jamnium. Jamnium. Okay. So that, that, this reflects what was going on at the time the gospel was written, not the time uh, when the miracle was performed. Okay, as I council of Jamnia, the authorities decreed that anyone who recognized Jesus as the Messiah is to become apo-synagogus. Synagogus is synagogue. Apo means away from or out of. So it means you cast out of the synagogue. And an interesting phrase here, after this in verse 24, for the second time they called a man who had been blind and said to him, give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. Okay, that term, give God the praise, or give glory to God, that was an old formula that was used before taking someone's testimony or before they, you know, uh, pleaded guilty. There are plenty of examples in the Old Testament. The first book of Esdras, first book of Samuel, Jeremiah, Second Chronicles, Joshua. Okay. A 
condemned criminal gives God praise by making a confession of his sin, by coming clean. That's basically it. You know, you're acknowledging the truthfulness of God by, you know, coming clean about your life, acknowledging your sins. So what the Jews are doing here is trying to get the man to withdraw his earlier support for Jesus and now come out against him. Because they're saying anyone who sides with a sinner makes himself guilty before God. So give God the praise, you know, tell the truth. You know, go back on what you said before. Tell us, you know, that you really weren't blind and this wasn't a real miracle. So the interesting thing is what the man's answer is. He says, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I know is that though I was blind, now I see. I said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered him, I've told you already. You wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you too want to become his disciples? Reviled them, saying, we're his disciple. We are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. As for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And I said, why, this is a, this is a marvel. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. You know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Ever since the world began, it had been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. This man went not from God, he could do nothing. He answered him, you were born in utter sin. Would you teach us? And they cast him out. I mean, this is a guy, he's his own defense attorney. He's more eloquent than his accusers of you. Know, they said something, now he puts them on trial. You, know, you don't know, what's going on? This is, this is a laugh. You're supposed to be the hotshots. You know, people know everything about this. And now you're asking me? So he says, whether it's sin or I don't know. The man seems to know that the law of the Sabbath has been broken. He admits the Pharisees are authorities on that subject. But as his next words show, he wonders if Jesus is not beyond the law, since he obviously did good in restoring sight. Emily asks, we don't even know where this fellow comes from. You go back to chapter 7, verse 27. People from Jerusalem mistakenly thought they knew where Jesus came from, namely Galilee. But Jesus always insists that he comes from above comes from the Father. And it's this heavenly origin that the Jews don't know. We don't know where it comes from. Okay? Here the Pharisees seem to be questioning his claim to be from God. Since they contrasted with the known relationship between Moses and God. They where Moses came from. So the Pharisees' expression of contempt is really an admission that they don't understand God's revelation. 728. Here's saying, you are disciples of Moses. You know that God has spoken to Moses. We know where this guy comes from. So they don't recognize his works. They refer to themselves as Disciples of Moses. Okay. Disciples of Moses were the 
the guardians of the Torah, in a sense. And they're coming face to face with the divine revealer, about whom Moses wrote. And if you remember, there's a lot of echoes of former stories in John's Gospel. Uh, when the blind says, you don't even know. Arrest me, you don't even know. Well, similar to Jesus' reaction to Nicodemus in chapter 10, chapter 3, verse 10. When Nicodemus says, "You, we know you were a teacher from God. 3.10 says, no one has ascended if I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So, what they don't know. Then God pays no attention to sinners. It's absolutely unheard of. Well, no miraculous healing of a blind man is recorded in the books of the Old Testament. There's one healing of a blind man, Tobias. The site was miraculously restored in the book of Torah. But he wasn't born blind. He came blind after birth, but he wasn't born blind. So he's right. It's absolutely unheard of that anyone cured a person born blind. Verse 33, if this man were not from God, this is what the man says, how could he do such things? And again, it's the same argument used in chapter 3 of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is talking to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Again, the same here. This man weren't from God, he couldn't do this. Then has some interesting byplay uh, here. Uh, they throw the guy out, says they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? I said, Who is he, sir? And they believe in him. Jesus said, You've seen him. It is he who speaks to you. He said, Lord, I believe. They worshiped him. So Jesus, the guy is cast out, he's thrown out. Jesus find them. Okay. You have a contrast there between the action of the Pharisees in driving the man out, and also uh, Jesus who seeks them out, finds them. And you go back to chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus says, anyone who comes to me, I will never drive out. Okay. In the book of Wisdom, Wisdom is described as going about in search of those who are worthy of her to them in their paths. So Jesus seeks the man out with the intention of leading him to full faith. So he's cast out by unbelievers, but he's found by Jesus. And then he questions him, you know, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the guy says, well, I, I don't. I don't even know who he is. Well, you've seen him. It's he who speaks to you. Now, it's interesting that terminology, Son of Man, Jesus presents himself to this former blind man under that title, Son of Man. Because verses 39 and 41 are going to have the theme of judgment. For judgment I came into this world, those who do not see 
may see. Those who see may become blind. What is one of the functions or missions of the Son of Man? Is to return at the end of time to judge the world. It's an eschatological concept. You have in uh, Mark's gospel, he has three ideas. He has uh, someone exercising divine power here on earth, then someone who suffers, and finally someone who returns triumphant and judgment. Just like in the passion scenes, you have, you know, you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. So it's a term that's very uh, much tied in with this concept of judgment. It's a frequent setting for the figure of the Son of Man, judgment. And the Son of Man and his exaltation will become judgment upon the world. So he says right after this, uh, judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. Those who see may become blind. What is he saying? He's going to judge the people who have sight, but don't have insight. They don't have faith. Okay. And he's not going to judge those who are born blind, but have come to faith. So that's why that title, Son of Man, uh, appears there, because it's uh, a sense of judgment there. The main function of the Son of Man, though, is to draw all men to himself. Those who don't come to him have already passed judgment on themselves. All right, I'm going to move on to uh, the raising of Lazarus. You have the story of Lazarus in chapter 11. Here we have the man born blind in chapter 9. Now the story of Lazarus. Here, the core of this Johannine story is a brief narrative of the raising of Lazarus of Bethany. Now it's similar to other synoptic uh, raising miracles like the Raising of the widow of Naim's son in Luke chapter 9. The raising of Jairus' daughter, Mark chapter 5. Matthew chapter 11 mentions that one of the important things that Jesus did was raising the dead. And we also find now the same picture here in John's tradition. Now the question arises, the only other time uh, a person by the name of Lazarus appears is in the Gospel of Luke. And then Lazarus and the rich man. Okay. And uh, I was wondering, what, what is John picking back on that miracle story? Is there any relationship to that story, to this miracle here in John? Because at the end of the story, what happens? They both die, and Lazarus is in heaven. He's raised. And what does uh, the rich man say? 
wants to try try get water yeah. to drink water. No water, but he says send Lazarus back from the grave to my brothers to warn them. What does Jesus say? Even if someone rose from the dead, they wouldn't believe him. All right. So you have a connection there of Lazarus and something being raised. But uh, it's most likely what most scholars think is that Luke's story uh, has that ed thing added on at the very end. That it's not a not John borrowing from Luke, but the tradition of uh, a person named Lazarus, but it's not talking about raising Lazarus. They said send him back, which would involve you know coming back from the dead. Uh, so the theme of the rich man's brothers and the raising of Lazarus seems to be an afterthought in that parable. The parable is really over. The whole contrast is the, the reversal of fortune. Remember in Luke, you know those who are rich now. Be poor, etc. Those who are merciful, uh, those who uh, are hungry, be satisfied. Said, who has this reversal of fortune? And the parable is the same thing. Lazarus never had anything. The rich man had everything. Now, when they die, the situation is reversed. So, the last thing about the rich man's uh, brothers seems to be like a attack on to that particular story. So, most scholars say there's no real connection or awareness on the part of Luke or John of, uh, you know, the, the story of Lazarus raised from the dead. Now, the skeleton of the story comes from early traditions about Jesus. The Synoptic Gospels present Jesus' condemnation as a reaction to his whole career so many things he's said and done. So, uh, you know, what happens to Jesus, according to the Synoptic Gospels, is a result of all that happened to him throughout his life and ministry. Everything he's said and done. And of course, to cap it off, uh, in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Luke 19 tells us that to the great discontent of the Pharisees, the people were praising Jesus because of all the mighty miracles they had seen. And then Jesus throws the money changes out of the temple. So the people are praising Jesus there. Jesus is winning them over because of all the mighty miracles that he performs. So that's what leads to Jesus' death in the Synoptic Gospels. All that he had done in his teachings and his miracle works. But John isn't satisfied with this general, with this kind of generalization. Namely, that all of Jesus' miracles led to enthusiasm on the part of some and hate on the part of others. So what he's done is taken one miracle and made this the primary representative of all the mighty miracles that Luke speaks of. So not the gospel talk about, you know, Jesus gets into trouble because the people are run over by his mighty miracles. Here John presents one dramatic mighty miracle. All of Jesus' miracles are signs of what he is and what he came to give human beings. So all the miracles are signs of what Jesus is and what he has come to give human beings. But in none of them 
does the sign more closely approach the reality and then the gift of life? Evidence in a miracle in which Jesus raises a dead man. Okay, the physical life that Jesus gives to Lazarus was not in the realm of life from above. It's quite close to it. And uh, as we had talked about earlier, the suggestion that the supreme miracle of giving life to one man leads to the death of Jesus. It's a dramatic paradox. It certainly sums up Jesus' career. Remember I said to you before, the irony of that. In raising one man from the dead to life, Jesus is going to lose his life. But in losing his life, he's going to give life to all the people. So one man dies, Jesus dies so that Lazarus, uh, Lazarus is raised from the dead, giving life to that one man, Jesus loses his life. Then in losing his life, he gives life to all. Now, when you look at the Passion story in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they know nothing of Lazarus. They describe in much more detail than John days preceding Jesus' death. The speeches he made in the temple courts and the session of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. But they never mention the raising of Lazarus. You know, when all the interrogations, in the Synoptic Gospels and the Passion Story, they never once mention and talk about you know it's going to destroy the temple and all these other things. Never once did they mention you know, that he raised Lazarus. Now the, re- the causal relationship. The raising of Lazarus to Jesus' death, the link there, that Lazarus' death brings about, excuse me, Lazarus raising to life brings about Jesus' death, comes from John's theological purposes here, more than from many historical reminiscences. John is the one who's deliberately taken this one miracle and used it as an ending to the public ministry of Jesus. So he's transported the money changes thing back to the beginning of his belt. Now wants to make this last story uh, the reason for. Uh, the fact that Jesus was put to death. In chapter 11, verse 37, uh, when Jesus finally goes and he meets Mary outside, the crowd said to him, uh, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? What are they talking about? Blind man from chapter 9. Right. So John is making the connection here 
all right? And he's having the crowd say, this is like a organically evolving thing. And sides of the blind man, look what he did for him. And he couldn't do anything for somebody who was very close to him, a stranger, look what he does. For someone who was a good friend of his, someone he loved, he's not gonna do anything. So John certainly intended the association here between that miracle of the healing of a blind man and the raising of Lazarus. There are interesting parallels in format between the two stories. In chapter 9, the healing of the blind man was a dramatization of the theme of Jesus as the healer. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night comes when no one can work. So long as I was in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus is going to show that he's the light of the world by giving the man sight. Now, the raising of Lazarus here in chapter 11 is a dramatization of the name of Jesus as what? Life. Life. Right. And those two themes, light and life, were mingled where? Hola, yeah. And to give life, right? Okay, so uh, the relationship of the word to humanity was to come to give light and life. Just as the word gave life and light to humans in the creation, so Jesus, in incarnate word, gives light and life to human beings in his ministry. The signs of the eternal life that he gives through enlightenment is gained from his teaching and from baptism. So, the name of Jesus. What did Jesus come to give human beings? Light and life. Okay. He dramatizes this. Two stories. Healing the man born blind and the raising of Lazarus. Now, just to go through a little bit of it, the setting of this miracle. Now, like Bethany was Jesus' lodging place when he came to Jerusalem, and the Synoptic Gospels seem to indicate that. It's quite reasonable to conclude that he stayed at the home of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, and they were indeed his close friends. But John now takes a true reminiscence and uses it with a theological purpose. Lazarus, the one whom Jesus loved, is probably being held up as representative of all those whom Jesus is loved. Jesus loves, namely, all of his followers. And just as Jesus gives life to his beloved Lazarus, so will he give life to his beloved followers. Now again, you have another connection with the story in chapter 9. The symbolic importance of the miracle is evident from the outset in the story of the healing of the blind man, chapter 9. What, what is the first thing that is raised in that chapter about the healing of the blind man? The disciples want to know what? Whose fault it was? Did his parents sin? Or was it his sin, etc.? Okay? So that's what we want to know. All right? Uh, and they are told that the blindness was for the purpose of having God's works revealed in Jesus. 
mentions uh, the works of God might be manifesting. Don't worry about darkness. This sign is going to serve an important purpose. Okay? Uh, works of God are going to be manifested in Jesus. So you have here the same thing. At the end of the Lazarus story, uh, Jesus tells the mother, didn't I tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? And then in the beginning of the story, he tells his disciples something unbelievable. He says, I'm glad I wasn't there. It's not actually resulted to death, to the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified by means of it. So these miracles are meant to reveal something about Jesus. The reason why the sickness is not attained to death is because Jesus will give life. And your physical life is a sign of the eternal life he can give. Lazarus' sickness is for God's glory. This miracle will also glorify Jesus. Not so much in the sense that people will admire it and praise him, but in the sense that it will lead to his death which is a stage in his glorification, going to precipitate his death, which is going to result in being glorified. Now, Jesus didn't go to help the sick Lazarus because he would be of more help to Lazarus when Lazarus was dead. Now again, a lot of these things should be Start to tie together to yourself. In verse 3, the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. When Jesus heard it, he said, This illness is not unto death. Okay? Uh, it's for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified by means of it. Okay? Now, what does that remind you of? Article by Giblin. What do you have? Two, right? Three, three things. It's a positive suggestion, negative response, and then finally, uh, positive uh, action. So, what is it? Mary says they had no wine. All right, she doesn't tell them what to do. What do the sisters of Lazarus say? Saying, you know, saying, this guy whom you love is sick. What's the implication? If you call up, should you? Yeah, that, you know, he means a lot to you. You have a special friendship. Okay, you know, would you do something? We're not going to presume to tell you to do this. We're just telling you. It's just like somebody calls you up and says, you know, uh, if something happened or something like that, and you know the reason they're calling you is want to do something. Yeah, that they, they don't know who else to turn to, or you're the one person they can think of that might be able to bail them out or help them. But you just say, no, I, you know, uh, no, I can't do this or something because something happened and all this stuff. So you know, I can take you. I can help you with that. So that's what you hope. You don't, you know. You offer up, you present the, the need. Okay. What does Jesus do? He hangs around. All right. 
So his reaction and response is a negative one. Just as in the Cana miracle, you know, you know, what business is it of mine? These people run out of uh, mine. They run out of wine. You know, what's to me and to you? How did I get involved in this? You know, it's just like a mother's drag their sons into things and didn't volunteer for it. Okay, so you have that again, a, a, a connection. You see all these stories. All of a sudden, you start to see uh, echoes of things earlier in the gospel. Okay. Uh, okay, so what it does here is presents a situation where Jesus can help without formally requesting him to do anything. And again, that's the point made in that article by Gillen. Okay, now. The question is, should Jesus go up to Judea? And there are two uh, tacks taken here. In verses 7 to 10 and 16, those verses are concerned about he's going up to die. No mention of helping Lazarus. And when he talks about that, uh, Jesus loved Martha when he heard that he silly stayed two days longer. And after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? He says that not 12 hours in the day, if anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So now we're talking about going up to Jerusalem to die. Again, that's echoes of the Synoptic Gospels. Why? Remember in the three passion predictions, Jesus tells his disciples, I have to go to Jerusalem. Why? Suffer, be put to death, not let they rise again. They're saying they just tried to stone you. You're going up there now to, you're walking into a death trap. Then you have the theme of light and darkness there, related back to chapter 9. The healing of the man born blind. Give the same emphasis on taking advantage of the light. What do you mean? While Jesus is alive, he can heal the blind man, he can raise Lazarus. Okay, so take advantage of the light. Now, in verse 11 to 15, you have another idea. The idea of going up to Jerusalem with a possibility of, of helping Lazarus. So, you know, going up to Judea, one point is, you know, it's like walking into a death trap. Now, the other point that you might want to consider about going up to Jerusalem is what you can do to help Lazarus. And he said, our friend Lazarus fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him out of sleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Jesus told them plenty, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. So, again, this idea, right, finally going up to to Jerusalem uh, to uh, help Lazarus. To give him what he can give him, which is the gift of life. And then also, again, risking 
his own life, which is which is actually what's going to happen. So you have the idea of going up to Jerusalem here with the possibility of helping Lazarus. The disciples misunderstand Jesus' reference to Lazarus' sleep. Okay, and that he's going on a journey to wake him. Well, sleep really means here death. To wake him means to raise him up. Have a similar plan of words in Mark's Gospel, chapter 5. After Jairus' daughter has died, Jesus tells the crowd, the child is not dead, but asleep. So now the misunderstanding of the disciples here in John leads Jesus to explain. That's it. always, of course, when you have misunderstanding, Jesus has an opportunity to teach more, explain more. To reveal once more the theological purpose of what is happening. The explanation is the same as back in verse 4. Well, in 4, the relation of the miracle to God is emphasized. In verse 4, it says, uh, His illness is not unto death, it is for the glory of God. The Son of God may be glorified by it. So it's God's glory to be revealed. But in verse 15, later in the Gospel, we're here. Uh, here's saying, I'm glad it was not there. And let us go to him. his miracles, what happened? He revealed his glory and what's the other thing that happens? His disciples believed in him. That's what it says, okay? So here he mentions both things here. In the beginning he says uh, it's to be for the glory of God and then in verse 15 he says go there so that you may believe when you see what I'm going to do. Both aspects are brought out there. So what Jesus did at Cana, he revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. So the two aspects of the miracle are brought together here in this uh, story of Lazarus. In verse 40, it's mentioned they're both tied together in verse 40. Did I not tell you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Talk about raising Lazarus. So they took away the stone. So he joins both when they say, you know, if you believed, you would see the glory of God. So Martha's told belief in Jesus will lead her to see the glory of God. All right, then you have two sections there, 17, uh, one big section, we're divided into two. Verses 17 to 27. You have Martha going out to greet Jesus, and then you have Mary going out to greet Jesus. And both accounts are very similar. They're always parodying one another. With the same greeting, etc. Lord, if you're in here, my brother would not have died. Bring the guilt trip on Jesus, right? 
So, uh, and also the emphasis is really placed on Mary. And one of the reasons, Michael, most likely that John did this, is going to be a link between the Lazarus story here in chapter 11 and the story of the anointing by Mary at Bethany in chapter 12. <coughs> Mary is promoted here. They promise why because she's going to appear in chapter 12, beginning the next chapter. She's going to anoint Jesus' feet. So Martha and Mary, as they appear here in John's Gospel, are true to the portrait of them in the Gospel of Luke. There, Martha is busy serving, and Mary sits at the Lord's feet, listening to his words. In John's Gospel, Martha rushes out to meet Jesus, while Mary sits quietly at home. But when Mary hears the teacher has come, she hastens out and falls at his feet. Now you have the dialogue here between Jesus and Martha. Martha believes in Jesus, but somewhat inadequately. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, he who is coming into the world. Okay, and then in verse 39, Martha says, uh, Jesus said, take away the son. By this time, he'll be dead in four days. Didn't I tell you if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And one of the things that Martha and Mary failed to see is that uh, Jesus not only can bring them back to life, but uh, it's not going to be just at the resurrection of the dead. She mentions to him, uh, uh, Jesus tries to console him. Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She said, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That's her beliefs. What is she just going to lead her to? Yeah, resurrection is not just something for the future. I can give life, eternal life, that gift right here and now. So he's going to lead her to that kind of faith. She has this belief that many of the early uh, uh, the Jews in later times believed in, you know, after uh, Maccabees, etc., when the young people died. You know, was it a disgrace? Was it a punishment from God? They didn't, their name didn't live on. They had no children, etc. And they started to believe that, well, God rewards people. We truly believe that. But, you know, he rewards people maybe not all the time in this world. They come in the world to come. So this is what she's expressing. I know we believe he'll be rewarded in the age to come. He'll be raised from the dead. But she doesn't yet believe that he has the power to give life here and now. She regards Jesus as an intermediary who is heard by God. Now I know whatever you ask God, he will give you. But she doesn't understand that he is life itself. Now, what does that also remind you, verse 22? 
Even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. What does that remind you of? What? When the Blessed Mother says to Jesus. Right. Right. She says to them, you know, uh, no, do whatever he tells you. Right. So again, you know, all these themes and echoes, you know, are coming again. So it's similar to Mary's instructions to the waiters, do whatever he tells you. So in each case, the person expresses the same half-expressed hope that Jesus will act despite seeming the seeming impossibility of the situation. Uh, we have no indication of the direction of Martha's hope or that she thought that Jesus would or could bring Lazarus back from the grave. In fact, verse 39 shows Martha expected no immediate return from the grave. <clears throat> but Jesus' answer in 23 on the resurrection of life is misunderstood by Martha as an expression of general comfort that Jesus customarily uttered at the time of death. You know, so it's like people, you know, trying to consult, they're always in a better place, etc. you know. I just lost somebody, that's what kind of comfort that, you know. So this is like, you know, she looks at that, you know, you're just telling me something I know, but I need comfort here and now. She joins Jesus in professing the doctrine of the resurrection of the body, which is advocated by the Pharisees. Even though it was a late Jewish theological doctrine, it was widely accepted by the common people in Jesus' time. But Martha's general understanding of the resurrection on the last day is hardly adequate here in the present situation. It was in John's realized eschatology, the gift of life that conquers death is a present reality in Jesus. Brings that out of verse 25, 26 there. I am the resurrection. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. But believes and believes in me shall never die. That's the present reality. Okay, so Jesus says, first, I am the resurrection. Okay. He tells Martha there, the present realization of what she expects on the last day. What she thinks is going to come the last day, Jesus says, no, you can, it's going to happen now. Jesus is the resurrection in the sense that whoever believes in him, though he may go to the grave, shall come to eternal life. And life in John always means what? Eternal life. Eternal life, right? It's that life from above, which is begotten through the Spirit. That life conquers physical death. So you're going to be given a life that will conquer death. It's the life from above. And second, Jesus says, I am the life. Whoever receives the gift of life through belief in Jesus will never die a spiritual death. Because the life that he gives is eternal life. So, those words, I am the resurrection, I am the life, describe what Jesus is in relation to human beings. And what Jesus offers to human beings. What does Jesus offer us? Eternal life, resurrection, he offers life, etc. 
have these notions of future eschatology and realized eschatology. here in this whole story responding to Jesus uh, saying that he's the resurrection and the life Martha confesses him under a series of New Testament titles he uses the word Messiah the son of God he was to come into the world and her outlook is similar to Samaritan woman's outlook Back in chapter 4, there Jesus presented himself as the source of living water, but the woman couldn't understand him, could understand him only as a prophet. Jesus had to send her off to get her husband in order to lead her to deeper faith. And here in chapter 11, in order to make Martha understand that he has the power to give life now, he'll act out a drama for the gift of life by raising Lazarus. He doesn't reject her traditional titles, but demonstrates the deeper truth that lies behind them. Martha doesn't fully understand that light and life have already come into the world. At the end of uh, chapter 20, John talks about Jesus did many other signs which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Two things to wrap up this. Uh, in the scene where Mary greets Jesus, it really doesn't do anything to a story, kind of a uh, duplication. But in that encounter between Martha and Mary, Jesus shows some strong emotions. The best explanation for the of Jesus in verse 33. Saw weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, deeply moved in spirit and troubled. He said, Okay. Uh, verse 33 would be the best reason offered for similar displays of anger in the synoptic gospels. Even though Jesus was angry, upset because he found himself face to face with the realm of Satan, which in this instance was represented by death. So when he, Jesus comes across people who are suffering, he's troubled by it. Why? Because that represents the presence of evil and Satan. And what does he do? His response to this is to heal, to exercise the person. But here, again, death represents the triumph of evil. What is Jesus? His, his reaction is sadness that this has happened in a person's life. He's going to do something, just as he gives physical healing and he throws out the demons from a person. Okay, he's going to do the same thing. He's going to uh, 
destroy death and bring the person back to life, bring Lazarus back to life. So it's really a struggle with Satan again. Now, the raising of Lazarus itself. You have uh, not only the emotions of Jesus, but the sorrow that Jesus has. Because they, they say to him, look, Jesus wept. See how much he loved him. And so you have a reaction of Jesus when he comes uh, face to face at the tomb, of, comes present at the tomb of Lazarus. But you have, even before he gets to the tomb, you have opposition to his command. When Jesus goes there and he says, finally, you know, uh, comes to the tomb and he says, take away the stone. What's their reaction? There'll be a stench. Yeah, the time there'll be an odor. He's been dead four days. So the last thing they were expecting is a dead body to come out alive. And they expect this thing, his body is corrupting. So, uh, so you have people, the opposition to it, you know, why take away the stone? You know, this guy is rotting away. What are we doing this for? Okay, then as I said before, you have the theme of glory and belief together. You see the glory of God and you come to believe in who I am when I do this for you. And the final thing we'll mention here is in 41, 42. Did I tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? So Jesus, so they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that you have heard me. I know that you hear me always, but I've said this on account of the people standing by, that they may believe that you did send me. When he said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with bandages, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Now Jesus presents these words here as a prayer. Before he speaks, Jesus looks upward. It's a gesture which is a prelude or preliminary to prayer. Back in the Gospel of Luke, remember you had the, uh, the Pharisee up front bragging about himself? And you had the, the sinner in the background. What did he refuse to do? Raise his eyes. Raise his eyes, right? Because he wasn't worthy, okay? Uh, it's the public and felt unworthy to make this gesture. Synoptic Gospels mentioned that Jesus looked up to heaven before multiplying the loaves. He gave thanks. He broke the bread and gave. He mentions this in his priestly prayer. John chapter 17, verse 1. What does he do? He raises his eyes to his Father in heaven. Jesus' first word is Father. Here, okay. It's a characteristic, but a typical manner of addressing God in prayer. And Jesus' prayer opens with thanksgiving, which is what all the classic Jewish prayers do. The Barakah, the prayer of blessing. But the explanation of why Jesus is praying may sound strange. Says, I'm doing this uh, so that those around me may benefit. I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you hear me always. Said this on account of the people standing by that they may believe that you did send me. So one of the most basic prayers of Jesus in the Synoptic tradition is that the Father may bring about the accomplishment of His will. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Same thing in Gethsemane. Father, not what I will, but what you will. It's in the Sanofi tradition. But in the life of the Joanine Jesus, Jesus is a perpetual, your will be done. Why? Because Jesus says he does nothing on his own. His very food is to do the will of the Father. Remember the Samaritan story? Woman of Samaria? And as this prayerful attitude is now summed up here in chapter 11, I know that you always hear me. His supreme confidence in the Father, because he always does what is pleasing to the Father. He knows whatever he asks is according to the Father's will. Therefore, he's heard. And he advances the same confidence in the prayer of his followers. Jesus rejoices because the fact that his prayer is heard will lead the crowd to faith. And he's going to pray for it, the raising of Lazarus. And because his prayer is heard, they'll see a miraculous work, which is the work of the Father. The exercise of Jesus' power is the power of the Father. They'll come to know the Father to receive life themselves. Jesus is not going to gain anything for himself. All he wants is that his audience will come to know the Father who has sent him. Okay, so John doesn't dwell on the details of this miracle because that's not important to him. What is essential is that Jesus has given physical life as a sign of his power to give eternal life on this earth just realized eschatology. It's also as a promise that on the last day, he will raise the dead, which is future final eschatology. Okay. All right. Let's have to take a break here, and then we'll come back. We're going to take a look at uh, the trial scene before Pilate, and then we'll take a look at uh, the resurrection appearance to, uh, to Thomas. Okay. So please make sure you're back here no later than 8.30. All right. Yep. Any questions for those of you on Zoom? Okay. Now you see a lot of these things coming back. Questions, do whatever he tells you. Know whatever you ask of the Father, he will give you. Constant things, you know. So uh, I want you... You start to get a handle on them. You start to realize what's going on here. So it's, you have to be born from above. Whereas Jesus comes from above. Only someone from above can give you life from above. If you're from below, you're in the world of sin. Darkness. Okay. Take a break. Please back to the thirty. I'll have you here till midnight. Oh, no. Good. We have some some sandwiches. We got to All right, just uh, spend maybe about 25 minutes or so just uh, taking a look at the trial scene of uh, Jesus before Pilate, chapter 18. This is the central part of the passion narrative in the Gospel of John. So the trial of Jesus before the Roman governor is 
the centerpiece of the passion story in the Gospel of John. Evangelist describes Jesus' arraignment before Pilate in greater detail at far greater length than in the parallel accounts in the Synoptic Gospels. Now, the thing is, I think, did you get a printout? Trial senior, right, okay. If you, if you have that in front of you, you'll see, uh, it'll be easier to see, follow along with what I'm saying. Now, what John does is he shapes the account in a drama, are you surprised? Seven contrasting scenes to bring out a distinctive theological vision. The issue around which everything revolves is the kingship of Jesus. Outwardly, the question is whether Jesus is king of the Jews. This is the messianic role that the Jewish authorities try to pin upon Jesus in order to have him crucified. In this interaction with Pilate, though, Jesus will address the issue and will show that, yes, he is a king, but of a totally different order and allegiance. Now, to bring out how this false accusation of kingship ironically witnesses to Jesus' true kingship, Evangelist makes the soldiers mock portrayal and narration of him as king of the Jews the centerpiece of this seven-scene drama. So if you look there, scene four. See all the scenes, scene one balances with scene seven, scene two with scene six, scene three with scene five. Scene four is the central part of this uh, uh, incident. So the remaining six scenes, three on either side of that central scene, unfold in a series of interactions alternating in respect to whether they take place outside or inside the governor's palace. The constant change of location has Pilate shuffling back and forth from one setting to another. And it's an outward reflection of his own inner turmoil. He's caught between his own conviction of Jesus' innocence and the pressure from the Jewish authorities to proceed to crucifixion. Now, if you see, take a look at that chart there. Scene one is outside, two is inside, three is outside, four is inside, five is outside, six inside, seven finally outside. Now, there's a reason for this. Why do you have scenes outside and inside the Praetorium? Outside, Pilate is addressing the Jews and all those scenes outside. Who is he addressing inside? Jesus. Jesus. Why? Well, because the others won't hear him. I'm checking. No. It's because the Jews will not enter the place of a Gentile. Right? We had this scene in the Acts of the Apostles where Peter was invited to Cornelius' house, but he didn't go at first. Why? 
to go into a house of Gentile would make you unclean and impure. And right here now, they're getting ready for the Passover. So they cannot, yeah. So that's why you have scenes inside and outside. So when Pilate wants to talk to the Jews, he's got to go outside the Praetorium. When he wants to have a conversation or a dialogue with Jesus, inside. So who is doing all the movement? Pilate. Who shouldn't be doing all the movement? Who's the boss? Pilate. Yeah. But it's back outside, and they're screaming for blood outside. Inside, he is dialogue and conversation with Jesus, and he's getting, you know, Jesus is winning him over. He's getting more and more convinced of his innocence. And yet when he steps outside, all of a sudden that conviction that Jesus is innocent now is buckling under the pressure that he's getting from outside. So you have this yo-yo effect. And what it does is reflect on the impact, you know, each incident is happening to Pilate. Pilate is on Jesus' side when he's talking to him, and yet, you know, he's listening to the crowd when he goes outside. So an unbelievable way that John is, you know, traumatizes, you know, so you couldn't stage it better. And it's indicating to who is the one hopping back and forth? When he's the guy in charge, people should be doing what he says he wants to have done. Instead, you know, he's Jesus and the crowds, especially, determining, you know, uh, what's going on. And John has another reason for making the trial scene the centerpiece of the Passion. From the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus has been continually on trial before the world, represented by the Jewish authorities. Now he's on trial before the world in the wider sense, represented by the Roman governor. So what's going to emerge as the trial proceeds is that it's the world in both senses that's on trial before Jesus' witness to the truth. In rejecting the one sent by God to his own, the Jewish authorities forfeit the privilege unique to Israel be calling up being called children of God. Now they've simply become one of the many nations subject to the power of Caesar. And on the other hand, in refusing to come to the truth, Pilate fails to emerge from the darkness of unbelief, and he winds up aligning himself with the Jews. Against the life-giving revelation of the truth. So ironically, despite acting as the chief witness to Jesus' innocence, judge in this case was Pilate, is the instrument of his own condemnation. Okay, scene one. Jesus is brought before Pilate and he's accused. So the trial scene begins with the Jewish authorities bringing Jesus to the Praetorium, court of the Roman governor. It's dawn, day of preparation, uh, which is to begin with the eating of the Paschal lamb that evening. 
because they don't want to make themselves unclean, unable to perform the ritual, the authorities are careful not to enter the residence of the Roman governor. So while scrupulously safeguarding their ability to eat the Paschal lamb of the Old Covenant, they're ironically determined to bring about the death of the lamb who truly takes away the sin of the world. New Covenant. Yeah. So Jesus shed his blood, New Covenant, they're eating the lamb of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant just commemorated their freedom from slavery. The New Covenant is going to be Jesus uh, rescue them from sin. So to accommodate his scruples, Pilate comes out to speak to them, ask what charge they bring against this man. They don't state any specific charge, but it simply insists that if he were an evildoer, they wouldn't be seeking to hand him over to the Roman authorities. So behind this response would seem to be a concern to conceal the fact that the charge against Jesus is a purely religious one. Infringement of the law of Moses, which would not compel Pilate to act against him. So they portray the thing in terms of someone criminal, dangerous to society on a variety of fronts, hoping the governor will simply proceed to condemn him. The pilot exposes their ploy. He tells them to take him and judge him themselves according to the, your law. He, he kind of figures this is a religious matter. He forces them to come clean on the fact that they're determined to secure Jesus' execution, something they can't achieve without the sanction of the governor, since it's not lawful for them to put anyone to death. Okay, so, because uh, no. they bring this case before Pilate, they're going to ensure that Jesus undergoes the form of execution the Romans were accustomed to, namely crucifixion. And this would fulfill Jesus' prediction about the kind of death he would die. And he spoke about being lifted up from the earth. Okay, the next scene there is inside. Pilate is speaking to Jesus. Once then we get investigate the case himself, so Pilate brings Jesus inside the praetorium where you can interrogate him privately. His opening question, are you the king of the Jews? Shows that he's seen through the ploy of Jesus' accusers. He knows they're bringing him to trial in a political, hence a capital charge. Jesus, though, reverses the interrogation. He asks Pilate whether he's raising this issue on his own account, whether it's something others have suggested to him. In other words, Jesus exposing the fact that the only reason the Roman governor could have for raising this sensitive political charge is because the religious authorities try to portray him as a king in order to secure his condemnation. Pilate says, I'm not a Jew, am I? It's your own nation, your own chief priest, handed you over to me. But aside from their accusation, Pilate has no grounds for arraigning Jesus on such a charge. Yes, Jesus, what have you done? Are you not the messenger pretender? And Jesus talks about, you know, about his kingdom. He classifies what his kingdom is not. It's not from this world. 
kingdom does not originate in this world. It has come from God, as, just as Jesus has come from God. This kingdom can only be instituted by God, not by human beings. This kingdom will have its effect in the world. It won't engage the world in the world's terms. If it did so, his servants would have fought to prevent his capture. Now, Jesus kind of distances himself away from answering whether he's a king or not. Uh, he says, you say I'm the king. He doesn't reject it out of hand. He's rejecting the idea of what Pilate and the rest of them would assume kingship is. So he's not buying into that, but he's not denying that he's a king. He's Israel's messianic king. It's a role that's understood in light of his mission from the father. So this I was born, this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. <clears throat> okay, it turns to listen to a voice that reminds you of the good shepherd. Those who belong to my foe, listen to my voice, right? The Jews are certainly not listening to his voice, and now neither is Pilate. Okay, the third scene. Outside again, Pilate and the Jews. Now, Pilate hasn't responded to Jesus' witness to the truth, but he's not, he's, neither he's not convinced either that the prisoner was brought before him is the dangerous rebel that the Jews are making him out to be. So going, outside, going back outside to confront the Jews, Pilate states his first assertion of Jesus' innocence. He finds no grounds, literally cause, the charge they're making. Then he resorts to a strategy that may get him off the hook, kind of relieve him from the pressure to condemn a prisoner whose wrongdoing he's not convinced of. So he reminds the Jews of their custom, he released one a prisoner at the time of Passover. They want to release the king of the Jews. This proposal is hardly realistic since they just brought Jesus before him for condemnation. They're going to release him? It's also strange that Pilate should refer to Jesus as King of the Jews when he has just expressed himself unconvinced that Jesus is guilty of the charge. <clears throat> so keeping this motif of kingship in the forefront highlights the choice made by the Jews when they shout back, not this fellow, but Barabbas. Okay. And again, going back to the imagery of the Good Shepherd. Rabbis is referred to as a bandit, or the word also can mean uh, you know, robbery with an element of violence, like armed robbery. The only other place where this term thief or bandit robber occurs in the gospel is in Jesus' image of himself as a good shepherd. Okay. Those who don't go in by the gate are thieves, right? Seeking to harm the sheep. Okay, now scene four, which is the critical one here, 
Jesus was scourged, mocked, and hailed as king of the Jews. Chapter 19, verse 1 to 3. Now, this short scene is the centerpiece of the trial story, uh, passion story in John's Gospel. Now, in Roman custom, flogging was a preliminary to death by crucifixion. It would normally be inflicted only after a sentence of death had been passed. The same would apply to the soldier's game of mocking a prisoner as king. You know, the synoptic accounts, Matthew and Mark, are more historically plausible in placing the scourging and mockery of Jesus after his condemnation. But here the Gospel of John departs from the more likely historical order in order to pursue a theological point. It is to bring out a theme that is latent in the synoptic accounts which John wishes to highlight strongly, namely Jesus' kingship. So Pilate's having Jesus scourged is hardly an attempt to please the animosity of the Jews, as it is to allow for his release. All along, they've made it clear that nothing less than his death will satisfy them. So it's highly unlikely a prisoner would survive very long under so severe a punishment. Scourging simply shows that Pilate is being carried along against his better judgment in an inevitable slide toward Jesus' condemnation. Here, within the Praetorium, what do the soldiers do? They carry out this mock portrayal of Jesus as king. Chapter 19, verses 2 and 3 there. The crown of thorns that they weave and place on Jesus' head is not so much an instrument of torture as an imitation of the crowns worn by rulers in the Greek world to signify their divine status. So the crown of thorns, okay, for a king, also a king that aspires to divine status. They clothe him in a robe that mimics the imperial purple. And finally, they approach him, hailing him as if in allegiance, king of the Jews, only to suddenly strike him instead. So on the surface level, it's just another instance of a cruel game played by the soldiers and one who is helplessly in their power. Ironically, however, they are proclaiming a deeper truth. What is the truth they're proclaiming? That Jesus is truly a king. Yes, he is king of the Jews, although the leaders of his own nation won't own him. And as non-Jews themselves, these soldiers represent the nations of the world whom Jesus will draw in allegiance to himself as king when he is lifted up on the cross. So there's no reference in John's account that the symbols of royal office, namely the crown, the robe, were removed from Jesus. But for the remainder of the trial, symbolically at least up until his death, the portrayal of him as king stands. He will die as a shepherd king, in contrast to the rulers of this world. going to lay down his own life so that his flock may live. We've seen five. We're back outside again, Pilate and the Jews. Once again, Pilate is a to confront the Jews. 
The second time he declares Jesus' innocence. And he answers that he's bringing Jesus out to them in order that you may know that I find in him no cause. Jesus emerges from the praetorium wearing the regal apparel. Pilate does not say, behold your king. As later in chapter 19, he'll say, but behold the man. So to say, here's the fellow, the man who delivered up to me, as falsely claiming to be your king. To show you a harmless and pitiful claimant we regard him to be, we reject him out as such before we want to release him. Now, it's also possible that designation of man might allude to the role of Jesus as the son of man, which in the Gospel of John has particular reference to judgment. Son of man is a notion of judgment. Like Caiaphas, back in chapter 11, Pilate would be stating more than he knows, naturally presenting to the Jewish leadership, one who now, and up to his eventual lifting up upon the cross, will be their judge. So while the world and the person of Pilate, the Jewish authorities, is wrestling over the judgment of Jesus, it is the self being brought before its judge. You're going to fulfill Jesus' prophecy when you lift up the Son of Man and you know that I am He. So Jesus is going to be like the Lamb wounded for our transgressions, as a suffering servant, and the Lamb who takes away the world's sin. response to the calls for Jesus' crucifixion, Pilate tries to evade all responsibility, telling him to take him and crucify him themselves. He still finds no cause in him. But Pilate knows that Jews didn't have the legal authority to carry out that execution. What he's doing is really mocking them, pulling attention to their lack of power in this regard. They have to depend on Pilate to get what they want. So, Pilate's resistance makes them finally admit the real basis of their hostility to Jesus and why they want him dead. Verse 7 there. The political pretext, king of the Jews, gives way to the religious grounds on which he has given offense. They have a law against blasphemy. According to the law, he deserves to die because he's made himself out to be son of God. Early in the gospel, Jesus had indeed claimed to be God's son. But he hasn't made himself out to be so. He is, in fact, God's son. So it's not blasphemy. It's God's son who acts only in accord with the will and design of the Father. Okay, now we're back inside, Pilate, again, with Jesus alone. Where are you from? Okay, Pilate's a little bit uncomfortable when he's the son of God. So he has to have a further conversation with, with Jesus. You know, we question, where are you from? And that's a typical question throughout John's Gospel. They want to know where Jesus is from. He's not from Cain and Cal. They all know where he's from. He's just not really from there. Where am I from? Above. Above, yeah. This is the same thing with Pilate. He wants to know geographically where you're from. And Jesus is going to answer the question on the other level. So he says, Nicodemus, married woman. So the question is not about Jesus' human origins, 
but about whether there's some kind of origin in the superhuman world that would underlie the claim to be son of God. Father is asking the right question, but Jesus refuses to answer. Joseph has spoken openly to the Jews without effect, and so ended his witness to them. He's already explained the nature of his kingship to Pilate and received a similar response. Okay, just uh, the final thing now. The outside scene, scene seven, Pilate and the Jews. This is where really gets in. The second exchange with Jesus that made Pilate all the more set on releasing him. He confronts the Jews with this intention, only to find them ready to play their trump card. Refer into the more political charge against Jesus. Very mind Pilate, from whom he receives his political authority, from Caesar. If he fails to act against someone who is making himself out to be a king, then he'll show himself to be no friend of Caesar's. Since everyone who makes that claim to be king sets himself in opposition to Caesar. This ramps up the pressure on Pilate to an incredible degree. All his claims to authority over life and death, now he risks losing the favor of the emperor for whom that worldly authority derives. He's caught in the trap that has been laid for him. The choice before him now is not merely between Jesus and the Jews, it's between Jesus and Caesar. So, with matters coming to a head, Pilate brings Jesus out once again, sits him on the seat of judgment. That's ironic because it, where does he have Jesus sit on the church's bench? But in this trial, Jesus is supposed to be on trial, but he's the one sitting in trial with everybody. Okay. All this is taking place. Uh, Jesus is going to be dying uh, as the Paschal lambs are exploited in the temple. Now, uh, interesting thing is uh, the king is the lamb who takes away the sins, the world's sin. At one level, Pilate is mocking the Jews. He's getting back at them now. He's pointing to this pitiful figure that Jesus now presents as their king. But at a deeper level, precisely in his wounded, pitiable state, Jesus is the king of Israel, the king that Israel needs. He's the shepherd king who is the instrument of human reconciliation with God. So when they cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him, Pilate asks mockingly, shall I crucify your king? Shockingly, they cry out, we have no king but Caesar. That repudiation flies in the face of all biblical tradition of God as Israel's king. What are they doing? They're turning their back on God. You know, Pilate got caught between a rock and a hard place. In the end, he has the final say. He's got them. Because they reputed the basic thing of their faith. God is their king. They're giving up their freedom as God's children, becoming subservient to the emperor of Rome. They're abandoning any hopes for a messianic king. If we have our king, Caesar, or are looking for a messianic king? They're making a tragic turn away from God 
and the promises contained in the law, and becoming another vassal state of Rome. <coughs> their expression of loyalty to Rome drives Pilate into a corner from which there's no easy escape. They already warned him that to release Jesus would make him no friend of Caesar's, would make him appear less loyal than they. He doesn't formally condemn Jesus, but he simply hands him over to them to be crucified. So it's presumed, since uh, only Romans could carry out that sentence, it's presumed that Pilate orders his soldiers to carry out the hand. I think that's not right there. Okay, so you see some points. So the center of the Passion story of John is that trial scene before Pilate. It's laid out in uh, seven little scenes. Each balancing one and seven, two and six, three and four, three and uh, three and five. And four is the centerpiece of the trial scene. Where where does it do? It highlights the kingship of Jesus. So a lot of the dialogue, are you king of the Jews? You know, we have no king but Caesar, all this stuff. So that's really the, the main point in that story. Okay. Now I just want to do the Thomas story now. But before that, we're taking the, uh, the chart there, the story of Jesus' appearance to the group of disciples. On that story of Jesus' appearance to the group of disciples. Scene two. Is it the dialogue with the disciples? Oh, Just an hour. It shows that line. Which father? Yes. I have one that's Luke. Where's the John's? What's it called? Luke on one side, John on the other. Right. That's it. Ah, okay. It's the story of Jesus' appearance to the group of disciples. That should be the heading. Yes. And now, what you see here, I try to outline uh, kind of clearly and neatly, is uh, there is what we call a, a, a genre called the group appearance genre. Just as we had the Annunciation genre, the Cation genre, and the uh, Infancy accounts of Luke, there's a special genre that follows certain uh, steps. Now, what is part of the genre? Well, in these appearances of Jesus to a group of disciples who have Jesus appearing in a room on the first day of the week, then what follows? There's the greeting of peace from Jesus. Then you have the reaction of the disciples, mostly of fear or fright. And then there's doubts and questions raised. And then Jesus provides evidence that his hands inside to dispel those doubts. Then the response of the apostles is joy and happiness. And at the end, Jesus sends the spirit to them. So those are the unique features of this, what we call group appearance genre. So every genre has certain features, just like epistle. That's a genre that follows certain things. You have an opening, salutation, a body, and conclusion. Now, if you look at that, there is one feature of the group appearance story that's missing in Luke one feature that's missing in John. And there's a reason why those features are missing. 
What's missing in Luke? What are on that sheet? Do you have that sheet? It's the yep. sending, sending of the Spirit, right? It's not in Luke. It's later on in 49. So in the group of parents' story, it's all the features except the final one, the sending of the Spirit. You go over to John's Gospel, what feature is he missing? In John's Gospel, the first one is the group appearance. The second figures are the Thomas story. What's missing in the first group appearance? Thomas. On that sheet, what is it missing? Well, Thomas isn't there, but the doubts and questions, right? Do you see that? There's a blank there. When you read the story in John's Gospel, it gets everything is the reaction of the disciples, and then Jesus produces his hands and feet. For what? What's the purpose of producing your hands and feet? To show the marks. To dispel the doubts. It's, it's really Jesus. So, in Luke's group appearance story, he has all the features. The appearance of Jesus in the room on the first day, peace greeting, reaction of the disciples, the doubts and questions, evidence of the hands inside, the joy reaction. But the sending of the Spirit isn't there. Why? Because the sending, sending of the Spirit is going to be the basis for his next work, which is the what? Acts of the Apostles, which has the sending of the Spirit, Pentecost. So he, he withholds one key element of the genre, and he's going to make that element the foundation piece, the central piece for his next story. Now, in John's Gospel, he has all the features there except the doubts and the questions. Why? Because that's going to become the centerpiece of his next story, which is Thomas. So each of those authors withholds a key element of that group of parents genre because he's going to make that the focus of his next work. And you can see it doesn't make any sense. Why does Jesus produce his hands inside to dispel doubts in 2020 when none of the disciples have expressed doubts? So you know that element was there. John is just taking it away for a second. And he's going to use it, follow up right away. And you notice he creates the Thomas story very similar to the Luke story. Jesus appears again on the first day of the week. Greets the apostles again with peace. Okay? Uh, there's no frightened reaction because they've seen him before. But then now he's going to raise the doubts and questions, not of all of them, but of Thomas. And he produces hands and side to Thomas. Here, put your finger here. And then. Uh, and he's already sent the spirit on them in the first now. Oh, that was a question. Yeah. So we just don't know if Thomas got that, right? We assume he does. He, for the spirit. 
Oh yeah, Jesus sending of the Spirit uh, was given to all of them. Tom, but see, when you read that story, feels like Thomas missed out. That's all. Uh, well, when you read that story, we're reading it because we're reading into it. When you read that story, okay. Uh, Jesus appears on the evening of the day, the first day of the week, the doors. Okay. Does it say anything about Thomas not being there? No. No. Your presumption, without coming with all the baggage that we have, would be that they're all there. Why would Thomas not be there? They're all gathered out of fear of the Jews. And Thomas is going to take off on his own? No. So what John has done is created this story of Thomas, who may have expressed doubt when he was there for the first thing, but he wants, there's a reason why he's making this story. Now, 24, now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. That's the first time we know about that. So the disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, place my finger in the mark of the nails, place my hand in his side, I will not believe. Eight days later, his disciples were again in the room, in the house. Thomas was with them. The doors were shut. Exactly the same thing happened before. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. It's a duplicate of the first appearance story. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. He doesn't have to say anything because he knows Thomas has questioned and doubt. Now he's producing the proof to clear away the doubt. Put your hand your hand placed on my side, be not faithless but believing. Okay, so now, uh, this is really the ending of John's gospel. What has John done? He's created this Thomas story as a story for us. Who is he writing the story for? Because right at the end of that, he says, Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So, all the other disciples believed in Jesus because they saw him, right? He appeared to them. Thomas, Thomas was what? The other disciples said, we've seen the Lord. Unless I see the prince in his hands, feet. I will not believe. So Thomas refuses to believe on the witness or testimony of the eyewitnesses, the apostolic eyewitnesses. He was asked to believe on their testimony, but he refused to. And in doing so, I wrote a paper on this on my top of it. He was asked to be the first of the non-seeing believers, but he winds up being the last of the seeing believers. Who are the non-seeing believers today? Us. What are we asked to put our faith in? Like the testimony of others. There's that testimony. Right, right there. Right there. And he says, now Jesus did many other signs. Uh, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, believing in the life in his name. <laughs> so the gospel is written 
so that we may come to believe. Now, so everybody up to that point, in other words, Jesus, uh, faith can no longer come from seeing Jesus. Jesus has left this world. He's present in the spirit. But we will not have the physical, physical presence of Jesus to lead us to faith. Our faith has to be based on eyewitness testimony of the apostles whom Jesus appeared. So what John is doing is this is his farewell story. He says, this is for you. And then he says in the end, list Thomas, have you seen if you believe because you have seen me, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. What is that called? Faith. That the thing. Blessed are those. What's that? The attitude. The attitude, right. So uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed. You know, we have a beatitude in church, in mass. What is it? Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those who call to the supper of the Lamb. Right? So now he's declaring what? Blessed to you because uh, you see me. Blessed are those who have seen me. He says also, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So He's saying, equally blessed, if you've seen me, you've come to believe in that way. But equally blessed are you who come to believe, even though you haven't seen me. In fact, that might even be a greater act of faith. So he's not, you can't say the the ones who actually saw Jesus are more privileged, more better off. He's not saying that. He says, you are on the same par. You've accepted the testimony of those who believe because they've seen it. So this is really the real end of John's gospel. This is his sign of story. And it's a story written with us in mind. Okay, he's uh, taken Thomas out of that first group appearance scene. Why? Because he wants to highlight his doubt. Okay? As the doubt of everyone else who wonders, you know, how can I believe in Jesus? I haven't seen him. I'm going to play some assessment. So you have that. Uh, so you see, and Luke goes on to do the same thing for the spirit. Okay, the giving of the spirit is doesn't come until Pentecost. Uh, the other thing, too, is that in, uh, in the appearance story here, When they go to the tomb, okay. Uh, when Mary Magdalene sees the gardener, and then she says, uh, "If you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. I will take him away." Jesus said to her, "Mary, turns to some Hebrew which means teacher." He said, "But do not hold me." It's a, it's a tense, which means stop holding on to me. Stop holding on to me. Uh, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. 
Go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. When I told the disciples to see the Lord, she told them, he had said these things to her. Now, what does that tell you? Don't hold on to me because what? I am ascending to my father and your father. So the ascension is happening when? Now, right now. So just as I said before, John sees that, you know, if you have resurrection, uh, actually, uh, yeah, yeah, lifted up on the cross, lifted up from the grave, and lifted up to heaven. So John sees that as one continuous event. And then Jesus says earlier, only when he's returned to the Father can he give the Spirit. So what does he do? He appears to them shortly after that group of appearance scene, and what does he do? Gives them the Spirit in John's Gospel. But he can't give the Spirit to anybody because he tells Mary Magdalene, I'm on my way. I'm returning to my Father. Only when I return to my Father can I come back and give the Spirit. So that's why we call it the Paschal Mystery. Yep. I'm rising, ascending, yeah. Resurrection, ascension, yeah. But in the Synoptic Gospels, it's divided up. Why? Because you don't have this theological thrust that you have in John. Come down from heaven, return to heaven. Okay, the one from above is going to return to his place to receive the glory he had from the beginning. I hope you've seen some, some things you never saw before. Also, another thing too is that when Jesus hands, that is also a polemic against what group? The Jews. No. Against most of your Gnostics, Docetists, said Jesus appeared to have a body really didn't have one, right? I ate the fish. Right. So, you know, he's not just a spirit. He's a real person. So you have, you know, a, a, what you call a polemic, you know, just to say, you know, this is to show that Jesus had, this is the same Jesus uh, died and rose. He has the, the marks of his death and resurrection. But he's not quite the same. He's corporeal in the sense that he has a body, but it's a body now that can pass through doors that are shut which most physical bodies can't do. So Jesus' resurrected body is recognizable as his, the body he had before, but it's not quite the same. Okay, there are certain things about it that are different than before. Supernatural. Yeah. And then in chapter 21, that's an after, not an after, that's uh, an addition. Because why would you say, why would you end it with that Thomas story, and said, you know, I could write many other things, but I've only written these so that you may believe. And then go on with another resurrection appearance. And then at the very end, that say, I mean, any other things that Jesus did. If everyone could written, I suppose the world wouldn't contain, couldn't contain the books that would be written. Okay, but I've written these things. Uh, we know his testimony is true. And so the, the chapter 21 is added on. Have a similar ending. It's like a PS, a postscript. Okay. 
Okay, but the story has ended already before. And why do you have this uh, chapter 21? Because in it, Jesus gives Peter the opportunity to recant his triple denial. Jesus was supposed to be the leader, the one who was going to take care of Jesus' flock. And then Jesus asked him, do you love me? Do you love me? Tend my lambs, tend my lambs, tend my sheep. So three times he professes his faith in Jesus, his willingness uh, to accept the role that Jesus had given him from the very beginning. So he has an opportunity. Whereas earlier in John's gospel, there's no sign of Peter's remorse, just as Jesus looked at him. And there was no sense that he broke down or anything else like that. But here is, you know, the thing. And also, this is a John I community. A beloved disciple is John. He's their hero. He's their boy. But even John himself says, you know, the church, Jesus did not found this church on the beloved disciple. He founded this church on Peter, on the rock. Peter's role in the church is to be its leader, its shepherd. And what is the role of people like John? Evangelist to be the witness know to, to bring others to faith and to add them to the, uh, the the numbers of the church well what i saw somewhere about that chapter 21 was probably written pretty close in time to the end because there's no original manuscript that doesn't uh the 21 apparently appears in well, you got to remember that you say original manuscript the earliest ones we have aren't until the end of the uh, fourth century. That doesn't help us. No. no. So you know, what happened in three centuries there, because the books were burned, et cetera. And then we know some of the ends of some books were missing from some of the manuscripts. So, you know. so sources are important. Exactly. you got to remember how far back you can go. Right. You have no, quote, original manuscripts, just as the Jews don't have any original manuscripts. They have copies. And the unbelievable thing is that sometimes in a space of 700 years, same as the one 700 years before, which goes to show you they seem to have been very careful. It was in a joke. This was a serious business. All right, does anybody have any questions? Now, next week for your test, it's going to be on probably. Uh, you have to check in and get your uh, sign-in for uh, probably. I'm going to give it probably Monday to uh, Cynthia so she'll post it. So you have it available between uh, 7 and 9.30, okay? You can use your Bible. And uh, you'll have a choice of questions, probably three out of five, like I did in the midterm be somewhat similar and it will cover almost everything but you, uh, you know, pick what you feel more comfortable in answering and uh, I'll be on Zoom as well so if you have any questions during the time uh, you can ask me questions okay uh, when can we cater uh, the homily that we're supposed to write on you know? it should be by next week by the final exam Okay. Uh, same Wednesday then? Yep. I have some already. Uh, I've done all the, except yours, Steve, I've done all the papers in this class. 
Martin. But if we finish it earlier, can we send it? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, let's set a deadline, in other words. Instead of, you know, taking final exam, so in lieu of that, I should have it by Wednesday. You want to share it? Not yours. Well, obviously. <laughs> uh, yeah, because it, the course was Pauline and Joanne literature, and in funeral literature, usually one of the first, first readings you can use is from Paul, and many of the gospel choices are from John. So that's why you know, if you pick a Pauline reading and a Joanne reading, you should be able to hopefully apply some of what you learned in class you know, to that situation. Thank you, Father. Any questions? Anybody on Zoom? Questions? You can email me during the week if there's something that you bothering you a lot that you need some answers before next Wednesday. And uh, I'll check out these papers. Make sure you have them. I want to have them done so that they know what I do with exams. Yeah, everything will be posted on Will you put that on the wall from Connecticut? Here? What day? Graduation. Yeah, the graduation you guys are coming in. Are you there? Good. Well, presumably you're going to graduate. Nah. We're not presuming a big presumption. Remind the guy. If we can follow up, I will be. Night prayer at times 30. If anybody's interested. Thank you, Father. Before I look at the Okay, good luck, fellas. I'll see you on the phone. It's two days after. One of my students in my other course, one of the things that he's interested in.